0: Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? You guys feeling good today? Oh, come on. You guys feeling good today? Oh, we're excited. We're excited. Hey, uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Christian Life Center. It's a joy and honor and privilege just to be able to serve you guys in any way uh, that we can. And uh, we're going to get into the Word uh, this weekend. We've been in this sermon series called The Thread. How many have been enjoying this series so far? And uh, for the last couple months, we've been in the Old Testament. And I can finally tell you today, we are now in the New Testament. Come on. You guys ready? Starting at the book of Matthew. You can flip there with me to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, verse 1, we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Matthew and some context between the Old and New Testament. Old Testament was written 1,400 years ago. New, New Testament uh, was written in a single lifetime. Just for comparison purposes, the New Testament really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything that the Old Testament has been anticipating for thousands of years is now coming to fulfillment here in the New Testament. It's going to start right here in the book of Matthew. And you're going to see in the book of Matthew these, the unfolding of everything that's been anticipating this one single event. One single event they had been anticipating for so long, which was the coming of the Messiah, the king of the world. And so he's coming, and the book of Matthew was primarily written to a Jewish audience. And there are four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke— over 50% of its content is very similar in style. But then you got the Gospel of John, which 90% of its material is just unique to the book of John. And all of these Gospels really give us a description of Jesus' ministry and different high points, low points, different angles, his ancestry, everything. And we're going to look at Matthew because Matthew really deals a lot with this, uh, this idea about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. Over 33 times does Matthew mentions the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And what is he talking about there? You might have heard that phrase when someone mentioned, hey, the kingdom of God is like this. And what what does Matthew mean? When he's talking about the kingdom of God. And so this weekend I want to kind of zone in on that central theme, this idea about the message of what is the kingdom of God. So my question is, what do you think about when you think about a kingdom, right? What's the first thing that you think about when you think about a kingdom, Maybe most of us would think about a castle, or in order to have a kingdom, you got to have a king. Maybe you think of power, or jewels, or territory, or walls, fortresses, maybe war, power, or wealth. Uh, A couple uh, weeks ago, my family and I, we went to uh, vacation up in Asheville, uh, North Carolina, and we toured the Biltmore Mansion. It's a phenomenal mansion. How many of you have heard of that before? And uh, it's pretty cool. And so you're able to go inside the mansion, you're able to look at the rooms, it's on a beautiful piece of property. But when I was walking through the Billboard Mansion, I thought, this is royalty. This is what I think of when I think of a kingdom. Like, they lived in style. Look how amazing that is. And uh, so when I was walking through, I'm like, man, they, you know, they were telling us they had a bunch of servants serving them. They, they literally didn't do anything when they were in that, in that mansion. But when I think of kingdom, that's when I thought about when I was walking through the rooms in the mansion, very wealthy and powerful. But today I want to kind of tell you about a a different type of kingdom, a kingdom that is totally opposite of what we think about when we think about the term kingdom, a kingdom that is upside down from anything that we know about or have thought about in our imaginations, a kingdom with no walls, a kingdom with no end, but it's eternal, a kingdom that's not of this world, but of the heavenly realm, a kingdom ruled not just by a king, but the king of kings, and his name is Jesus. Amen. I'm going to talk to you about that kingdom today. And the kingdom kingdom of God is, is, is really something that is so upside down from what we think about. You know, uh, the kingdom of this world is so counterculture to this kingdom of, of, of heaven and the kingdom of God. That's why oftentimes the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God, often clash with each other because the kingdom of this world puts value on different things that the kingdom of God does not put value on. And so I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God. My first point for you today is the kingdom of God is not just for kings. The kingdom of God is not just for For kings, And this is where I'm going. We're talking about who is the kingdom of God for, what does the kingdom of God look like, and how did the kingdom of God come to fulfillment? So this is what it is. The kingdom of God is not just for kings. The book of Matthew, if you're there, um, is written to a Jewish audience. And I would say the Jewish audience was uh, a—the Jewish people were a little bit more proud— They were a little bit more religious. And they would look back and say, all the guys in the Old Testament, that's our family. All the people God spoke to in the Old Testament and worked through, that's our family. And what they would tend to do, they would overlook the sins of their own family and say, well, my family doesn't need a Savior. But they, their family too, indeed, need to be adopted into the family of God. And so Matthew is writing to the Jewish people. He is actually a Jew himself. But he's the most unlikely person to be writing this. Because even though he was Jewish in orientation, he worked for the Roman government. And the Roman government was a very godless, paganistic government. And on top of that, he was a tax collector, all right? And uh, people still don't like tax collectors. And he he was a tax collector, and he would literally go to the people of God, take their money, all right? And then he would pay the government, which didn't have the same values as the Jewish people. And then he would keep the leftover money for himself. So he was double disliked. But he had a life change when Jesus comes and meets with him and says, hey, follow me me, and he begins to write the book of Matthew, and he starts off with the family line of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I'm not going to read to you the whole genealogy of Christ, but I encourage you to do that. It's a powerful, powerful text. And the best story, but let me say this, the best story in the entire world, the most adventurous story, the the story about redemption and salvation, hope, keys to the eternal life, it starts off like a phone book, a long list of unpronounceable names. But in those names, in those names, it tells us that Jesus Christ is a real person and that he can be traced. This is like Jesus's Ancestry.com. And what makes this story amazing is that in some of those names, is a long list of people. Those people had some sketchy past. Some of those people did some things that were very, very questionable. Not only did Jesus associate with liars and cheaters, adulterers, murderers, prostitutes, but Jesus had some in his family lineage. He had some in his family. And why does this matter to us? Because it shows that from the outset of Jesus's life, he wanted us to associate with all of us. No matter what we've done or have become, we aren't beyond his love and reach. Write this down. Man, who is the kingdom of God for? It's for the most unlikely people. It's for the most unlikely people. Rahab is mentioned in the lineage of Christ. No one shows us best like Rahab the prostitute or Rahab the harlot, Her story is epic. She's from a race called the Canaanites who were enemies of God. And what happens is that some of God's people come to her city called Jericho and they need to be hidden. And so the Jericho authorities come to her house. Hey, are you hiding somebody? She lies to them and says, no, I'm not hiding anybody. So we've a lying Canaanite, Prostitute, And she is in the family of God, the lineage of Christ, because God is a father who is willing to let people into his family. God is a father who is willing to look at the most rebellious, most troubled person and say, man, I will be your father and my love will change you. Isn't that good today? Come on. He is a father that welcomes anybody into his family. That's good stuff. And so he, he, he's a father that lets in. And Rahab, he, he, she gets converted, has a life changed. She has faith. And look what happens in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Solomon and Rahab, They have Boaz, who marries Ruth, who's also in the uh, line of Jesus Christ, who's from the tribe of the Moabites, who were despised people among the Jews. And then Boaz and Ruth, they have a son named Obed, who then has a son named Jesse. And Jesse then has a son named David. And not just any David, but this was King David. And guess who becomes the great-great-grandmother of King Dahab? Guess who? Rahab the prostitute. She's a part of the family line of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Man, that is awesome to me. Because listen, every time, watch this, every time Rahab's name is mentioned in the Bible, it's tagged with prostitute or harlot. Rahab the prostitute or Rahab the harlot. How would you like that? And that every time someone mentions your name, it's attached with the worst season of your life. Every time someone mentions your name, it's attached to the worst sin you've ever committed. Josh the liar. Josh, who's unemployed. Josh, who's an Ohio State fan. (laughs) For real, though, how would you like that? If every time someone mentions your name, it's attached with the worst season of your life. For Rahab, it was prostitute. It connected her past. Listen, if time heals all wounds, then we wouldn't need God. And time is not that strong, but God is. Because the only place in the entire Bible where prostitute is removed from Rahab's name, it's when her name is connected in Matthew chapter 1 with Jesus family. Watch this. The only way the past lets go of us is when it's confronted with a future in Jesus. When you are connected to Jesus, the future is bigger and brighter and greater than your past. And what happens is she gets invited into the family of God and has a place in the kingdom of God. Isn't that good news today? The point is, the kingdom of God is not just for saints. It's not just for the Christian people, the rich, the well-behaved, the ones who have it all together, the ones who grew up in a Christian home with two parents. The kingdom of God, it's made available to all people with all kinds of past. It's available to the addicts. It's available to the sexual immoral. It's available to the sick. It's made available to the cheaters, liars, adulterers, murderers. Anybody is invited into the kingdom of God because God is a father who loves us and is willing to... To invite us into his family. You got a past, God has a bigger future for you. You're invited into the kingdom of God. And not only did Jesus have people with sketchy pasts in his family, he proved it. He literally lived his life among outcasts and sinners. He didn't hang out with Christian people. He hung out, most of his ministry was hung out with outcasts and people with sketchy past. Matthew 9 describes the people he came to bring the kingdom of God to. In this chapter, we see him heal a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. We see him raise a dead girl back to life. We see him cast out, cast out demons out of people. Matthew 15, 29 says this. He says, departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. And having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were laying crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. This is how Jesus was ministering to people on the daily. He came to bring the kingdom of God to the least of these. Matthew 19.23 says that it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He came to those who were poor. He came to those who were outcasts and sick, who needed Jesus kingdom of God is for all people, people with pasts, people who have messed up. It's made available to all of us, to the most unlikely people. Now flip over to Matthew, all right? Flip over to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew really describes the teachings of Jesus and his life. He really showcases some of the greatest teachings that Jesus has ever taught um, in this lifetime. And so Matthew chapter 5, it's considered the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in the entire world. Now, I know you've heard some good sermons here at CLC, but you're about to hear a really good one from Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And I want to show you the what. What does the kingdom of God mean? actually look like. He gives us a description of what the kingdom of God looks like in Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verse 1. And my second point for you today is the kingdom of God doesn't look like a kingdom, all right? The kingdom of God doesn't look like a kingdom. And we're going to find this out right here in verse 1. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. So he goes out into the crowd and he begins to teach a sermon. And he's teaching this sermon because he cares about the people who are in front of him. And he begins to give them, "What is the kingdom of God? What does the kingdom of God look like? And in verse three, it says this: He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed." When you are poor in spirit. What, is, what does that even mean? Poor in spirit. Is he, he's not talking about financial poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. He says, blessed are those who recognize you are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. See, there are a lot of people who are rich spiritually, right? They'll say, well, I got it all together. I'm good. I got it all figured out. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I don't need anybody else. I'm good. And Jesus says they're missing out. I'm the kingdom of God. Blessed are those of us who realize how wretched we are without the blood of Jesus. Jesus says, "Blessed are those who recognize their need for God." Come on, how many in this room say, "I need more of God in my life?" Come on, listen. You, some of you are like, "You don't want to meet me when I don't have Jesus with me. I'm not a nice person." Anybody like that? Come on. We need more of God in our life. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And the Sermon on the Mount really turned everything upside down. For the Jewish people, they had been taught from generations to generations that, hey, good people are going to go to heaven. If you do enough good deeds, that's going to get you into heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. People who know how to forgive others and love others well, just like Jesus Christ, people who have messed up and asked forgiveness, are those of us who will get into heaven. And the Sermon on the Mount was is is a really a description of what does the kingdom of God look like? How we should live out this kingdom of God that he, Matthew mentions so many times in the Bible. And here's what it looks like. It's basically saying, here's what's attracted, attractive spiritually. When you are walking humbly and recognize how far apart you are without God. People don't, who, who don't live like this are missing out on the kingdom. The goal is to be more like Jesus. And Jesus wants humility. He wants brokenness. Poverty in spirit. Man, you're saying, man, God, I just need you every day. It's for those of us saying, man, I need Jesus as a parent. I need Jesus as a pastor. I need Jesus when I'm by myself or with other people. I need Jesus when people are driving really slow on the highway. I just need Jesus, (laughs) right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need for God. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven opens up to them. Then he says this, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Now he's not talking about those who, you know, start to cry when they see something sad or when they watch like a good chick flick, all right? Anybody love a good chick flick around here? Come on. I'm a guy, I'm admitting it. I like a little good chick flicks. I cry a little bit, but you know, don't laugh at me. Come on. I'll get emotional. But, you know, he's not saying, "Hey, when you watch something sad, you're going to mourn." That's not kind of that's not the kind of mourning he's talking about. He's saying mourning because you're repentant of your sins. There's bad morning and then there's good mourning. And good morning flows from a place of humility and brokenness. I remember I did something really bad when I was in high school. And I remember feeling so much regret for what I did. And let me say this, God doesn't want you to live in regret. Regret's not the key. Remorse is not the key. Repentance is the key to healing your broken life and broken heart. And I remember I did something so bad in high school and I remember I felt so so bad about it and I, I remember going um, to my room, didn't even talk to my mom or dad and I went straight to my room and I just remember it started with regret in my head. Oh, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe, I can't believe I did this. And then it trickled down to my heart to remorse. I'm like, oh, why did I do that? And then I began to get on my, my knees I just said, man, God, forgive me. And I begin to sob. I begin to mourn for the sin that I committed. See, what the kingdom of this world will tell you, ah, it's just a mistake. Ah, you just messed up. Move on. And they won't call it like it is. It's sin. Sin is anything that separates you from God. And I remember just being so sad because I sinned against a great heavenly Father. And we need to get back to that place of mourning where we're repentant of our sins, that when we sin against God, we don't just don't brush it under the rug, that we are like, man, I'm sorry, God. Please forgive me and have a repentant heart. Blessed are those who mourn. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who are gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. What he's saying here is when someone hits you, don't respond with anger. Don't respond with anger. The greater strength lies in the person who can control their emotions, their words, their body when someone is treating them unfair. And Jesus is going to teach us in the greatest sermon ever that when someone slaps you on the cheek, don't slap them back. Some of you are like, that's way too radical, Josh. That's way too radical. That's how Jesus is saying what the kingdom of God looks like. Man, Jesus says, you want to be a follower of me? This is the character that I'm looking for, a character of gentleness. And let me say this, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength because you might be the bigger person physically, man. But some of you, you can use your words to tear somebody down. You can make someone feel so little and so small, even though you're not the biggest person in the room. You're like, man, you can make someone feel so little and so small, And what the Bible is saying, what the kingdom of God looks like is when we respond with gentleness, we're not verbally abusing somebody. Man, I'm just gonna say it, man. Some of us, every time we see a Facebook post that we disagree with, something on social media that we don't like, we love to put our little two cents in and comment and put our words in. And really our words are not that nice because we like to use harsh words, slap them down, make sure they feel like nothing. Listen, I know I'm talking to somebody here today. But what the kingdom of God looks like is blessed are those who are gentle. And gentleness means just being quiet. And saying, I'm going to pray for them. That's the bigger person spiritually. Is when you are gentle. Gentleness. First Peter 5, 6. This was on my heart this week. It says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. I sense that if someone, you're in a season right now, you just feel demoted, maybe mistreated. Maybe someone's been lying about you, people not including you. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And in due time, he will exalt you. He will exalt you. Humility is the key. Gentleness is the key. This message is so upside down. This is an upside-down kingdom. King of this world says, man, if you want to become the greatest and the best, you just got to keep working harder, keep working your way up. Listen, but Jesus is saying if you want to become the greatest, you got to become a servant. Man, blessed are those who are gentle. And then he says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There are a lot of people who are thirsty for the pleasures of this world. And the pleasures of this world will choke out the thirst for God. The more that I drink from the world, the less thirsty I am for Jesus. And the crazy thing is, the more I drink from this world, the, less, the emptier I become. John 4 gives us a great example of this. There's a woman who comes to the well. She's filling up her bucket with water. And Jesus says "There, hey, you're going to drink that water. Guess what? You're going to be thirsty again. And then, and then Jesus says, man, if you drink the water I give... You will never thirst again. Listen, what's the living water? When we get into God's presence and his word, we are feeding ourselves with living water. Come on, it's better than any chips or queso that you can get, better than any Starbucks drink you can order. It's the living water. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. Man, let's stop pursuing the things of this world. Because it's so easy to get trapped in. Because the kingdom of this world says, man, if you got that nice house, you got that great car. Once I get married, once I have kids, then I'll be good. I'm satisfied once I get that promotion. And so oftentimes we hunger and thirst for stuff that doesn't satisfy us. Listen, we were made for God's kingdom. The water you need... Catch this, the water you need is the presence of God. It's better than any alcohol drink. It's better than anything you can smoke, any drug you can take. It's better than anything in this world. Listen, we need to come back to this, a deep hunger and thirstiness for righteousness in his presence of God. Come on, can we give God praise for that? Let's be a church who is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. So he says, blessed are those who who hunger and thirst for the things of God. Then he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How many need more mercy in your life? Come on, there's just people that just test me. I know I mentioned driving before, but when people are going slow on the road, man, those people just test me. I just want to get where I'm going. And some of you are like, I'm the slow driver. Sorry. If you see me, I'm not telling what kind of car I drive, all right? But man, there's people that just test your test your patience, test your mercy, right? Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your spouse, whatever it is. They just test your mercy. And we think that punishing people fixes behavior, but oftentimes it's mercy that changes someone's heart. His mercy leads us to repentance. His kindness draws us to him. And then Jesus says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love looking into the eyes of my little girl. Adeline, and she just turned one this week. One years old. Can you believe that? I've been a dad for one year. Hallelujah. I made it. Yeah. It's nothing like I expected, all right? Let me just say that. Um, But I love it, and I love looking into the eyes of my little girl. We have that picture. Can we show that? Uh, Yeah, it's awesome. Back there. Oh, there she is. Yeah. And I love looking into the eyes of my little girl and She's so beautiful. And when I look into her eyes, I just sense this purity of heart. This purity of heart. She's untainted by the world, untainted by discouragement. And I just look, love looking into her eyes like that. And God wants us, when we talk about blessed with the pure in her, God wants us to live with that type of purity in our hearts. Pure in spirit. We're not cynical about other people. My little girl loves all people. She doesn't even know them. She just waves. Man, God wants us to be like that, just we're not cynical of pastors, cynical of the church, cynical of, of God, or, or, you know, we're taking an offensive saying, or everyone's suspicious, you're suspicious about everybody. Listen, God doesn't, that's not what God is saying. Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus cares more about who you are than what you do. Some of us were so work task oriented. Jesus cares more about your heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Oftentimes the first person you know, oftentimes when I see someone for the first time, I'll ask them, hey, what do you do? Are hey, you a construction worker or a dentist, nurse? You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. I, I go to school. I work at the base. And oftentimes they'll identify with that and they'll immediately think that's who they are. Let me just say this. Jesus is more concerned about your character than he is your competence. He's not looking for how good you do things. He's looking at what type of person you are on the inside because the kingdom of of heaven starts on the inside. It's an inside job. When you start to live a life of purity, man, the outflow of that, man, you start to live out what the kingdom of God is made for. Blessed are the pure in heart. Psalms 51 says, create in me a pure heart. And then he says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. In a world that's so full of violence and anger and hate, fight them back, shoot them back, God's saying, man, blessed are the peacemakers. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. It's totally countercultural the way we live. Matthew 7 also says this in the greatest sermon. He says, don't judge so that you will not be judged. Kingdom of God, it looks like for those of us who don't judge, oftentimes Christians are the best judgers. Listen, don't judge other people. Love on them. Show mercy and grace to somebody. Listen, Matthew 18, he says this, uh, what, the great, uh, what the kingdom of God looks like. He says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and says, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child to himself and set him before him and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Totally opposite what the kingdom of this world says. Then he says, Matthew 18, verse 21, The kingdom of God is for people who forgive. You don't hold a grudge against somebody, but you forgive somebody. And the kingdom of God looked so upside down from what the Jewish people had thought. And not only did he ta- you know, teach about this, he demonstrated it in his everyday life. And listen, you can begin to show what the kingdom of God looks like as soon as you leave this place. As soon as you get out of, of church, you can literally live out. These, these beatitudes, what the kingdom of God looks like. You don't have to wait till next year to start a new habit. Listen, you could start right now showing what the kingdom of God looks like. I love what John Calvin said. He said, He said, It is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, and even our checkbooks. Because God in Christ is king over every one of those spheres of life. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifested in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects to the king of kings. Man, we can live out that kingdom. Yeah, thank you for that. Come on, that's how we're supposed to live our life. Live it out. All right, the last half of the Gospel of Matthew. Flip over to uh, verse, uh, chapter 21. 21 through 28 really deals with the last week of Jesus' life. And um, Matthew really spends more time looking at the last week of Jesus' life than he does his first three years of his ministry. Some context for you. Jewish people had been living in silence for 400 years. From the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, they had been living in 400 years of silence. What that means is not one word from God came to the people. So the Jewish people thought they were forgotten about. This long-promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, they thought it was over. They thought they would never get delivered. They had been waiting for the kingdom of God for so long. And they had been oppressed by the Roman government, a paganistic, godless government who holds different values in them. And I love what Matthew 4 Matthew 4 17 says, Repent and believe. Jesus is literally saying this. He says, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So he's literally coming to the Jewish people. The long awaited kingdom, the long awaited kingdom of God has come, and it's come in the most unforeseen way. And you would think that the Jewish people would get a little bit more excited about the kingdom of God and the Messiah coming. But the reaction was completely opposite. They, they totally missed it. They were like, what? Who? They, they thought that Jesus, the king, the king of kings was going to come and bring political deliverance, drive out the Romans and overthrow, and overthrow the Roman government. But Jesus did it in the, in the totally opposite way, and they missed out on what the kingdom of God is. Write this down. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God came in the most unlikely way. The kingdom of heaven came in the most unlikely way. It was fulfilled through a family line of people with sketchy pasts any form of a virgin birth to two teenage parents who knew nothing about parenting in a stable surrounded by one of, some of the most unlikely people, shepherds who in the lowest of the social, social status. And it came in the most unconvin- unconventional way. And the Jews missed it because they had a different interpretation of what their king was going to look like. I love what Matthew uh, 21.5, it's a prophecy that's being fulfilled from Zechariah 9 Nine, it says, "Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of a burden." Here's what it's saying: Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people. It's Passover week, and what Passover is, it's it's where the Jewish people would sacrifice a lamb for their sins. And Jesus is making a huge statement right here. He's riding on a donkey, which means that he's coming not to bring war. But to bring peace. And the Jewish people, till this day, to, in that city, they were like, I, I don't get it. I thought he was gonna drive up the Romans. I don't understand what's going on. And he's coming in in the most unlikely, unforeseen, most unconventional way. He's trying to tell them, man, I'm coming to you. I'm coming not to bring political deliverance, but I'm coming to bring deliverance for your sins. That I'm the unblemished lamb, the lamb of God. And by my blood, you will be forgiven of your sins and be able to have the keys to the eternal life. And the Jews missed it. Came in the most unconventional way. My last point for you this weekend is this, the kingdom of God traded a throne for a cross. The kingdom of God traded a throne for a cross. The ultimate act of the kingdom of God being fulfilled was not reigning on a throne or wearing wearing a crown of jewels, but it was hanging on a cross, wearing a crown of thorns. That's how the kingdom of God was fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah said, man, like by his stripes, we are healed. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, him being beaten, humiliated, mocked, spit on, hung on that cross, is the reason why we can have access to eternal life. It's because of what he did for us. It's only through the cross that we can have eternal life and enter into the kingdom. It's not about how much money you make, how much power you have, how many good deeds you do. It's about whether or not you've chosen to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior. And in just a moment, we're going to partake in Holy Communion, an amazing act of God pouring out His blood for us, His body being broken for us. And we're going to sing this amazing song called Crowns, where He literally traded the throne and hung on a cross for us. Showing us that the ultimate act of all the promises being fulfilled and anticipating the Old Testament now being fulfilled by Jesus Christ being hung on that cross for us. And it's because of what He did that day on Calvary that all of us in this room can have access to eternal life. Doesn't matter what kind of past you have, doesn't matter what kind of family you're born into. It's because of what he did for us on the cross that we can have eternal life and have a seat at the table and partake in holy communion. And I love this when we do this because it's, it's really a, a remembrance that God forgives us of our sins and that he loves us so much. And by his grace, we are free. So I want you to listen to these, the words of this song and meditate on your own life. What's God been speaking to you? What areas maybe you need to change and how to carry out this kingdom of God? Maybe for some of you, you're like, man, I'm just here today. I'm like, I'm feeling so unqualified to partake in communion. Why would God want to forgive me? He came exactly for you. He hung out with sinners, outcasts, He hung out with Christians. He came for all people because he loves us. So in just a minute, we're going to take communion, but we're going to sing this amazing song. meditate on these words of what God did for us. Aren't you thankful that our wealth is in the cross? And we'll boast about the cross of Jesus. I want you to get your communion elements out. And this is a time where we remember what Christ did for us 2,000 years ago. It says in Matthew 26... This is the Last Supper, verse 26. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take it, for this is my body. Come on, hold up that that piece of bread. The body is symbolic, his body being broken for us, beaten for us, humiliated for us. And it's only through his body that we could have access to the kingdom of God, that everyone's made available. We remember that today. Let's take it. And then his blood, the blood of Jesus, wipes away all sins. It says this in verse 27, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. And then he says, But I say to you, I'll not drink of this fruit of the vine from now or until that day when I drink from it new, when you are with me in my Father's kingdom. By his blood we are healed and forgiven. Isn't that good news? We can we can drink from this and have a seat at the table. Let's drink together. So God, we thank you in a in a symbolic moment where we remember what you did for us. God, we will always boast in the cross and your blood that was poured out for us. God, we thank you today. We thank you today for what you did. God, help it never to get old. We always remember, this is why we're here, to bring the kingdom of God to others who need it. Help us to live out that kingdom to the least of these, to the ones who need it, to live out what you've called us to do. And God, we thank you that you fulfilled the kingdom of God in the most unconventional way. And it was only through this way that we could experience freedom and grace and forgiveness and your mercy. God, we thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, we are thankful that you're here today. We believe God's got something amazing for you. Man, be blessed this week. Come back on First Wednesday, prayer and worship. We're going to get really into the word and worship. We love you guys, and we'll see you on Wednesday.